Well, this morning we are going to finish up our series on lessons to learn from temptation, and we are going to subtitle the message today, How to Kill Your Beloved Sin. And so that's going to be the topic today, and we're just going to look at different selected scriptures to learn some important lessons on how to deal with the sin. If you seem to be struggling with any particular sin in your life, how to put that sin to death. David and Karen Maines wrote a trilogy of allegorical children's books which teach biblical principles. The first book is entitled Tales of the Kingdom. It's composed of a number of smaller stories that all relate to a place called Great Park. And in Great Park, there's a special gathering place called Inmost Circle. Great Park represents the world. Inmost Circle represents the church in the world. Inmost Circle is surrounded by a ring of fire. And when those who are outside the ring are living in the world, they just look like normal people. For instance, the king is often seen as as a beggar, as some sort of homeless transient. But when he enters through the fire, he becomes what he really is, the king. There is a funny-looking handyman with all of these gadgets. His name is Caretaker. He represents the Holy Spirit. When he goes through the ring of fire, he becomes the chief ranger. Mercy is an old, ugly, wrinkled lady, but when she enters the circle, she becomes a queen. And there is a little girl named Amanda. Amanda is like any little girl, energetic, likes to play. But when she enters the ring, she becomes Princess Amanda, one of the many daughters of the king. And Amanda, like all the children of the king, has been given a gift And her gift is the gift of perfect aim, which she has received from the king to use for the benefit of others in inmost circle. And one day, Amanda, along with other children, were playing near the lake, hunting dragon's eggs. In the spring, the the dragons would come and lay their eggs. Eventually, they'd hatch at night and fly away. And... While they made a game of it, there were were signs put there by the king that strictly forbade anybody taking any of those eggs home with them. Yet Amanda decided that she knew better than the king. And so she took an egg home and eventually a dragon hatched out of that egg. At first it was cute and it was fun to play with. It had little puffs of hot air and smoke that would come out of its nostrils But eventually it grew rather large. It started breathing fire and scorching the walls of her house. While she was hiding this dragon in her home, people would come by like caretaker, ask her how she was doing. Is that fire I smell? And she would deny it. Well, yeah, I I caught something on fire by accident and she covered up her sin. Pretty soon she didn't want to hang around with anybody in inmost circle. And pretty soon she kept even attending inmost circle. The dragon had caused so much conviction in her life. That she started hiding from others who loved her. Well, the dragon became so large and so scary that she decided she was going to take things into her own hands, take that dragon out into the forest And hide it there, ditch it, 
and run back home, which she did only to find that the dragon showed up at her doorstep a couple days later, larger than ever, breathing fire and terribly angry, ready to consume her. Amanda, of course, was very frightened. So she cries out to caretaker who told her just a couple days before, if you never need ever need me, I'll just be there. And immediately caretaker shows up standing beside her. She pleads with caretaker to kill her dragon, but he refuses and tells her this. No, Amanda, I cannot kill this dragon. Only the one who loves a forbidden thing can do the slaying. You will always hate me if I do it. Only you can slay this dragon. And then he hands her a hatchet. Amanda is then left to face this dragon who at this time is tearing up the sod with its claws and breathing fire. And she rushes upon it, throws her hatchet and with perfect aim, it sinks in and the dragon falls dead on top of her and begins to crush the life out of her caretaker then lifts the dead dragon off of her and she is rescued then the moral of the story is given so the princess discovered that when one loves a forbidden thing one loses what one loves most this truth is a hard-won battle for each who finds it and is always gained by loss This morning, we are going to address how you can kill your beloved sin. Something that isn't very popular today, I would imagine if you went around and did a survey of churches in the area, you'll find out that uh, maybe a sermon has never been preached on this in years. You see, in our world, it's not very popular to talk about your sin and how you have to deal with it because we're saved by grace. And so a lot of people are confused into thinking that just because they're saved by grace, they can just live any way they want. But that's not what we learned this morning, is it? The Puritans were great students of the heart, and many came to the conclusion that every person has a beloved sin that they nurture in their heart, that they need to slay. And that as soon as you slay one, another one pops up in its place. And that our whole life is spent trying to kill these beloved sins one after another. Thomas Watson in his book, The Godly Man's Picture said, Our beloved sin is usually the one that is the favorite, the sin which the heart is most fond of. A beloved sin lies in a man's bosom as the disciple whom Jesus loved lay in his bosom. Watson then gives six different ways to discern which is your beloved sin. See if this helps you discover what yours is. One, Watson says, your darling sin is the sin which you do not like to have reproved. Watson goes on to say, men can be content to have other sins declaimed against. But if the minister puts his finger on the sore and touches this sin, their hearts begin to burn in malice against him. Secondly, Watson says, your darling sin is that sin which your thoughts run to the most. He says, whichever way the thoughts go, the heart goes. He who is in love with a person cannot keep his thoughts off of them. Examine what sin runs in your mind. What sin is first in your thoughts and greets you in the morning. That is the predominant sin. 
Third, your beloved sin is the one Watson says that has the most power over you and most easily holds you captive. Do you have a sin that you keep falling into? Do you have a sin that continues to hold you captive? One that you have repented of a thousand times, but like a stubborn weed, it keeps growing back in your life. The sin that you receive pleasure from, does anything come to mind? That is your beloved sin. Fourth, your beloved sin is that which you argue to defend and justify, says Watson. When you look at your life, what sin is there that you defend? That you are ready to argue for and make excuses for and rationalize and suggest that it's harmless and that you have freedoms. That sin which causes you to quickly change subjects when someone mentions it. That is your beloved sin. Your Delilah sin, says Watson, Watson, is the one which most troubles you and flies in your face in the hour of sickness. If you have been sick to the point of death recently... Or maybe you have thought of death and dying. Or maybe you have thought of the second coming of Christ and the judgment to come. Maybe there's a sin that instantly pops into your mind. Certainly, Watson says, that is your beloved sin. Six, Watson says, finally, your enduring sin is the sin which man finds most difficult to give up. Watson explains, quote, as with the castle that has several forts about it, the first and second fort are taken. But when it comes to the castle, the governor would rather fight and die than yield to that. So a man may allow some of his sins to be demolished. But when it comes to this one sin, that is the taking of the castle, he will never agree to part with that. That is the master sin for sure. Now, we all know that God knows everything we think. We know he can see right now into all of our hearts, that all of our thoughts are open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. And so right now with God watching, just put a little circle around your beloved sin. Put a bullseye on it. And determine to kill it by God's grace. Watson gives this advice. The besetting sin is of all others the most dangerous. As Samson's strength lay in his hair, so the strength of sin lies in the beloved sin. This is like poison striking the heart which brings death. A godly man will lay an axe of repentance to this sin and hew it down. He sets this sin like Uriah in the forefront of battle so that it may be slain. He will sacrifice this Isaac. He will pluck out his right eye so that he may see better to go to heaven. So what exactly is your beloved sin and how can you overcome it? And that is what we are going to look at this morning. I want to give you eight different remedies, which when combined together, create an effective weapon to put your beloved sin to death. There are various scriptures that we might go Two, I am going to go to Romans 8, chapter 12, or 8, verses 12 and 13. Romans 8, verses 12 and 13. Of course, Romans 8 is the climax of the book. 
He starts off the book talking about how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into a rather lengthy uh, discussion of the contrast between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit and how they are opposite to each other and that you cannot do both. You're either walking in the flesh or the spirit. You're either saved or you're unsaved. And then in verses 12 and 13 of Romans 8, Paul says this. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Let me ask you, are you putting to death the deeds of the body? This is what it means to be a Christian. Christians execute their sins. The phrase putting to death means just that. It means to kill, to execute, to mortify. It's the same word used in the Gospels of the Jewish leaders who were wanting to and eventually succeeded in putting Jesus to death. They executed him. And here we are told that Christians live their life putting to death the deeds of the body. The the word is a present active verb, which means Christians are those who continually put to death the deeds of the body. I don't know about you, but I think you would find out, find this to be true, that when you deal with one sin, it seems another one takes its place. You could talk to some of the older saints here, ask them about their growth as a Christian, and they would tell you, well, when I was 14, I was trying not to smoke, drink, cuss, and chew. And those are like the big things in their life that they were trying to deal with. But then they got by that, and they were never trying to read their Bible on a regular basis. And then they were trying to pray on a faithful basis. And then they were trying to serve, and then they were trying to give. And then God started working on these little heart issues, one after another after another. And each time they seemed to kind of get by one, God would reveal another. And then when they get by that one, he reveal another and they get by that one, another and another. And they're still dealing with different sins. And it happens all your life. You have to keep putting them to death because new ones keep popping up. Sometimes old ones that you think are dead resurrect themselves. And so you need help. The scriptures give you help. And let me give you eight helps. The first is pray to God for help. Christians are often quick to admit that they need to pray. And how often, though, do you forget to ask God for help against sin and temptation? How often do you wake up in the morning and never ask God to help you with your battle against sin and just go on the day? How often do you not all the way through the day ask God to help you? God is the one who has the power to help you overcome sin, but you have to ask. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 6, 13 to pray, to pray. What do not lead us into temptation, but what deliver us from evil in Luke chapter 22 verses 40 and 46 as Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane praying right before his crucifixion twice. He tells his disciples pray that you might not what enter into temptation. What does that tell us that you need to pray that you might not enter into temptation? If you're going to escape temptation, you need to pray that you might not enter in. 
God is there, but he wants you to ask. And you see this all the way through the Bible. For instance, Psalm 119, 133, the psalmist cries out, Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Does that describe you? Do you pray that way? If you are not, then you need to start. Make it a habit of asking God for help. Secondly, memorize related scriptures Scriptures that specifically address your beloved sin and recall them to mind when you are tempted. This is so important. I could preach probably a long time on this one point. But let me just tell you this. You should have an army of scriptures memorized in the area of your weakness. If you have problems with anger, you should have all sorts of scriptures memorized that address that and the folly of that. It doesn't matter what the sin is. You need to get God's word, put it in your mind so that every time that sin pops up, those scriptures are there. They're like soldiers there to defend you against your own self to remind you of what is true and what is right. If you don't know how to do this, this is how it is. It's really complex. Just get some three by five cards. Write those verses down there you want to memorize. Stick some on your bathroom mirror. Put some in your car. Put one next to your favorite chair. Put one next to your bed. Put one in your Bible. Every time you go to any of those places, pick up the card, go through it. You'll have it memorized in no time. Get God's word in your heart, as the psalmist says, so that you might not sin against him. Every piece of scripture will help you in your battle against your beloved sin. Third, avoid flirting with temptation. Proverbs 11:27 says, "He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him." If you start looking for evil, hanging around those who engage in evil, you know what's going to happen? Evil will come to you. It will seek you out and it will find you. If you play with fire, as the proverb says, you will get burned. Proverbs 1711 says a rebellious man seeks only evil. So a cruel messenger will be sent to him. The word messenger there is almost always translated in the Old Testament angel. It might be translated this way. A rebellious man seeks only evil, so a cruel angel or demon will be sent to him. You think, well, God wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, he would. You remember Saul? He kept rebelling against God and rebelling against God. And so what did God do? He sent an evil spirit to torment him. The lesson to learn is this. Don't flirt with temptation. Don't be like those who play with poisonous snakes, for eventually you will get bit. If you struggle with drinking, don't go to places that serve alcohol. If you struggle with pornography, don't go to places where you can see it or get access to it. If you struggle with some other sin, just don't go where that sin is, where that temptation is. If it's a location, don't go there. Don't do it. Stay away as much as you can. Fourth, have a plan of attack. And this amazes me. I talk to people, they're struggling with different things. I said, so what's your plan of attack? And they look at me like, what? You know, your plan of attack. 
What, what do you mean? <laughs> That's your problem. You don't have a plan of attack. You can't be the victim of your emotions and irrational thoughts in the heat of battle. And you need to be like a Navy SEAL, man. You need to be equipped, trained, instantaneous response to do what is right in every single circumstance that you might encounter. Otherwise, you're just going to cave into sin. You have to make plans. You have to form convictions. You have to say, okay, when this happens, I'm doing this. And that's just the way it is. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what they think. I'm doing this. What happened if you woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, your house was on fire? So you call 911 as fast as you can. And about 20 minutes later, when your house is just blazing now, you're wondering, where are they? All these guys show up in their own personal cars and they get out all sleepy and say, hi, we're the firemen. And you say, hey, 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 where's your engine? Where's your truck? Where's your equipment and your fire suits and your hats and stuff? And they look at you and go, oh, yeah. Uh, we should have brought them. Okay, okay, all right, we'll go back. And so then they all leave you and your house burning. And finally they show up and they all get out and you're thinking, oh, good. Well, maybe they'll be able to save some of it. And they get out their manuals and they're starting to read the instruction book. Because they don't really know how to use the hoses yet and don't know how to hook it up to the pump. And they aren't quite sure how to fit their helmet on. So they've all got their little instruction manuals out. That's how so many Christians are. They're unprepared. They don't even have a plan. They haven't even studied it. Somebody come in and say, yeah, really, you know, really struggling with this sin. I said, well, have you studied the Bible in that area? Well, no. They haven't even studied the manual. And what happens is, is as soon as the fire temptations break out upon their life, they're just consumed. Because they aren't prepared. Get a plan. Know what to do. You have a weakness. Get ready because it's going to come again. You know it is. So get ready. Have a plan. Five. Learn to lay aside and put on. Now, if that phrase is unfamiliar to you, you need to get familiar with it. You need to know the art of laying aside and putting on. Many Christians, again, have no idea about what I'm talking about because they have no idea about laying aside anything and putting aside or putting on what? What are you talking about? Well, the whole point is this. God saves us by grace and gives us all the grace we need to live for him. And he wants us to use the means of grace he gives us for his glory. And one of the things he tells us to do, he commands you to do and me to do is lay aside and put on. Turn to Romans 13 verse 12. Romans 13 Verse 12. I'm just going to give you a couple verses here. There's quite a few of them in the New Testament. The night is almost gone. Verse 12 of Romans 13. And the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside. Lay aside what? Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the put on part 
and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Notice here, you are told to lay aside the sinful deeds of the flesh and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And again, this is not everything there is. This is just a very small sampling. On the testimony of two witnesses, we're looking at it. Ephesians 4, 22. Paul says this, as he's talking about how to live a life as a Christian. He says in Ephesians 4.22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you may lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Notice twice he says, lay aside the old self. Lay aside falsehood. Put on the new self. Put on the new you that's being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The you that is created to live in righteousness and holiness and truth. All of us need to be continually laying aside the old self, deeds of darkness, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, falsehood, and the sin which so easily entangles you. And why does it entangle you? Because you love it. Face it. Just admit it. It brings you pleasure. You like it. And so I ask you this. Are you continually putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, praying, renewing your mind with the scriptures, prepared And equipped to deal with sin when it comes and how to avoid temptation. If not, it's about time you started, isn't it? Six, confess and repent quickly when you feed your beloved sin. The power to overcome sin and temptation is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we know, is resident in every believer. If you have the Holy Spirit, uh, you always have the Holy Spirit, for you are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And it will never leave you. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do one thing. The Holy Spirit doesn't help you sin. The Holy Spirit doesn't empower you to sin. Equip you to sin. The Holy Spirit never helps you do anything that is contrary to the word of God. When you do those things, you're on your own. You've said no to God, no to the caretaker, and you are going to do your own thing. And so anytime you're living in sin, anytime you've committed a sin and you haven't confessed it, you haven't repented of it, it's in your heart. You know you have to deal with it, but you won't. Don't think the Holy Spirit's going to be helping you out. It only takes one traitorous, treasonous sin in your heart to shut off the Holy Spirit's power. And it's not that the Holy Spirit leaves you. It's just that you shut off the power by rejecting the will of God in your life. And the way to turn that power switch back on is to confess your sin to God and to turn from it. And then you'll be walking in the Spirit's power again, according to the will of God, according to the word of God. And you can expect to grow as a Christian. But I'm telling you, if there's one sin in your life and you know it's there and you won't deal with it, you've turned off the switch and it's going to stay off until you deal with it. 
And so many Christians have this idea that they can be 99% right with God. It doesn't work that way. 99% right with God is wrong with God. You either deal with your sin, walk in the spirit, or you don't. And you don't have the spirit's help because the spirit is not going to help you do what's wrong. Seven, never think any sin is completely dead. If you've ever seen the movie Princess Bride, there's a character there named Miracle Max. And if Miracle Max became a Christian, he would tell you that your sins are only mostly dead. And that they are never all the way dead. They keep coming back, don't they? They keep coming back over and over to haunt you. Theologian John Owen, in his classic work, Sin and Temptation, put it this way. Sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. Just because the surface of the pond is still doesn't mean it's shallow. And just because right then and there it seems very calm and sin isn't rearing its ugly head, right below the surface of that calm water is often this huge multi-tentacled animal waiting to take you down. No, there's always sin in our heart. And you may slay one and another one quickly takes his place. But you know what the hardest part about this is? Is killing your beloved sin because it's beloved. If you were aboard a, a, a passenger liner or something and some suicidal terrorist was, was going to crash the plane into a building or something. You might risk your life to kill that person. Or if you were in the military and people were shooting at you and you knew that it was either kill or be killed, then you would kill. It would be much easier to do that. But if that someone is someone you love, if that someone is your dearest friend, your closest friend, your continual companion, the one that brings you pleasure, and enjoyment as Isaac did for Abraham, then it becomes a very gruesome and grueling task to put to death your beloved sin. Your beloved sin is often your closest friend, a great source of pleasure and joy in your heart, so dear to your heart, that you just don't want to deal with it. But hey, you got to put it on the altar. Like Isaac or Abraham did with Isaac and be willing to put it to death. Even though it causes you much pain and grief. Spurgeon gives us this sound advice about dealing with our beloved sin when he says, quote, When the prophet Elijah had received the answer to his prayer, and the fire from heaven had consumed the sacrifice in the presence of all the people. He called upon the assembly of the Israelites to take the priests of Baal and sternly cried, let not one of them escape. And he took them all down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So must it be with our sins. They are all doomed. Not one must be preserved. Our darling sin must die. Spare it not, for it's much crying. Strike, 
Though it be as dear as an Isaac, strike, for God struck at sin when it was laid upon his own son. With stern, unflinching purpose, must you condemn to death that sin which was once the idol of your heart, end quote. And that's how you have to do it. Everybody has to do that. They bring you pleasure and you just have to get to the point place in your life where you realize I am going to honor God and you put that thing to death by God's grace. But it may be that some of you who are hearing me right now understand perfectly what I'm saying. You've seen the scriptures. You understand what what we're learning here, that you need to deal with your beloved sin. And you know what that beloved sin is. You see it in your mind. You know that God sees it in your mind. But when it comes down right, right down to it, you just do not want to slay it and put it to death. You're keeping it. And in your mind, you know you're keeping it and you want to keep it. You understand that God would want you to part with it, but you have decided not to. Maybe you're a husband. Maybe you're unwilling to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You know, the Bible says, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, but you're not willing to do it. You're not willing to be kind or patient or sacrifice your own self or love your wife as your own body for her good. You will not put your beloved sin to death. Or maybe you're a wife and you will not submit to your husband with all respect. Maybe your husband is disobedient to the word and you know. He's disobedient to the word. And maybe he does too. But even though Peter says you are to submit to your husband, even if he's disobedient to the word, you just aren't going to do it. You will not put that beloved sin to death. Maybe some of you young women, though you know the word of God commands you to dress modestly and discreetly, have determined not to do so. You are going to dress like the world. You are going to fit in. And you don't want to stick out at school or college or at your job and look like you dropped off the Amish wagon. (laughs) You want to be like the women the Lord denounces in Isaiah 3. Verses 16 through 24, who walk around all puffed up with pride, with their necks stretched out, with their seductive dress and all these little gadgets to attract attention to yourself. And you just are not willing to give that up. That's your beloved sin. Or maybe some of you young men will not put to death your slavery to lust or your addiction to pornography or your immoral relationships. And you refuse to turn your eyes away from looking at vanity and you will not make a covenant with them and you keep gazing at things you shouldn't. That is your beloved sin and you just will not part with it. Well, I'm telling you this. If you will not part with your sin, you will part with heaven. Because God does not... Accept traitors. Many are willing to call themselves Christians, but are unwilling to live like one. They want to be just like the world. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your beloved sin. If you have a desire, if you have no desire to sacrifice your darling sin, I would seriously doubt your Christianity. And this leads us to our final point. Repent. And become a new creature in Christ. It could be that you are older. And you have gone to church for a long time. Maybe you grew up in the church. It could be that you're younger. And you've grown up in a Christian home. And you're going to a Christian school right now. 
or somewhere in between. And maybe there was a time in your life when you were convicted about your sin. Maybe you heard a sermon or heard a Bible passage or got caught and you cried and you wept and somebody got you to pray a sinner's prayer. And they told you that you were now saved, that you could never lose your salvation. And from that day, you have never doubted that you are a child of God. But maybe you should doubt. Maybe you should. If you are unwilling to part with your beloved sin. If you look at your life and you're not living like a Christian and I'm not talking about, oh, hey, I come to church and I sit in my same pew and I live my own stale, mediocre Christianity and hear sermons week by week to do penance. Listen, you're nothing better than a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness, a Christian science person. They do that. When I say look at your life, I mean, look at your life. What is there? Have you been born again? Have you been transformed? Have you been regenerated into a new creature? That's what I'm talking about. Are you one who rarely reads your Bible because you don't care to hear from God? Are you one who doesn't like to pray because you don't want to speak to God? Are you one who doesn't serve and give because you don't want to submit to God? You are a rebel. Admit it with a badge that says Christian. Meditation on the word of God, if it only depresses you and makes you feel guilty and never brings you joy, there may be a reason for this. It may be you're not saved. And if that's you and you're thinking, you know, it might be, that might be me. There are two options for you. And I want you to just reason with me for a moment. Just reason with me. Two options. They're pretty simple. First option, you realize you are enslaved to sin. You realize you have not become a new creature. You realize old things have not passed away in your life, that all things have not become you. You love your sin. You are enslaved to sin. You don't want to take up your cross. You don't want to die to self. You don't want to follow Jesus. You realize you are not saved. And here is your first option right now. Cry out to God in your heart. Ask him to save you. Confess that you are a rebel and you have not submitted to him, that you've lived like a hypocrite. Plead with him to deliver you from the judgment to come. You humble yourself, grovel at his throne and ask him for saving grace. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him for the dead. Admit your lost Admit you have lived a hypocritical life. Divorce your old master, Satan, and receive your new master, Jesus Christ. Repent, believe, and be saved. That's one option. And there's another option. The second option, you're going to continue in your hypocrisy. And you're going to deceive me and others. And you're going to continue to call yourself a Christian, though you know you're not. You will continue to pretend to be a Christian, go to church, do the same activities, give the same lip service to Christ and never grow. You'll keep going, sitting in that same pew, practicing your same old, mediocre, self-deceived Christianity because you will not humble yourself. You will not bow your prideful heart to the cross and confess to others and to the Lord that you are a pretender, a tear among the wheat. And you will keep sin and Satan as your master. Thank you. And because of this, you will never grow spiritually because you're not even born again. You don't have the spirit. You are spiritually dead. But in order to appease your guilty conscience, you will keep coming to 
make a show and to look Christian and look religious and look moral and weeks will turn into months and months into years and years into decades and soon grass will be growing over your grave and you will be in hell. You will be in hell. Why? Because you would not part with your beloved sin. Like the rich man in Luke 16, you will realize in hell that you have traded a drop of pleasure for a sea of wrath and you have let that beloved sin be a wedge to separate you from perfect happiness with Christ for all eternity. Such a path is folly. Do not let it happen to you. Don't let this sermon be the whip that eternally lashes your conscience for all eternity. You need to repent now, today, and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, if you're sitting out there and you're going, whoa, that's heavy. But I don't think that's me. I, I'm pretty sure I'm saved. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've seen growth in my life. We're not talking about perfection here. When you look at your life and you see that you, yeah, you're struggling against beloved sins, but at least you're overcoming them one at a time and you are growing. What do you need to do? Pray to God. Memorize scriptures. Avoid flirting with temptation. Have a plan of attack. Remember to lay aside and put on. Make it your habit to confess and repent quickly. Never be deluded into thinking that you will completely conquer any sin in this life or they are only mostly dead. And for those of you who don't know Christ, you need to repent and believe and be saved. 260 years and two days ago, Charles Wesley repented of his sin. He became a great preacher and a writer of many hymns. Among them is a hymn uh, which is really a prayer where he cries out to God for help to kill his beloved sin. And we're going to close with this. Maybe you might just want to bow your heads and hearts and listen. Maybe you might want to make this your prayer. Oh my God, what must I do? Thou alone the way canst show. Thou canst save me in this hour. I have neither will nor power. God, if over all thou art greater than my sinful heart, all thy power on me be shown. Take away the heart of stone. Take away my darling sin. Make me willing to be clean. Make me willing to receive all thy goodness waits to give. Force me, Lord, with all to part. Tear these idols from my heart. Now thy love almighty show. Make even me a creature new. Jesus, mighty to renew. Work in me your will to do. Turn my nature's rapid tide. Stem the torrent of my pride. Stop the whirlwind of my will. Speak and bid the sun stand still. Now thy love almighty show. Make even me a creature new. Arm of God, the strength put on. Bow the heavens and come down. All my unbelief overthrow and lay the aspiring mountain low. Conquer thy worst foe in me and get thyself the victory. Save the vilest of the race and force me to be saved by grace. You are dismissed.